This is Better Benefits, a podcast from the team at Brella Insurance. We're talking about how to use employee benefits to build a world where health hardships don't create financial burdens. If you're a broker or employer looking for fresh ideas and new products employees will actually use, this show's for you. Welcome. I'm Christine Latour from Brella. March is Women's History Month and a perfect occasion to talk with Maya Hardigan, CEO and founder of May Health. May is creating a world where high quality, proactive care is a standard for everyone and is elevating the level of care for Black women through a trusted digital first health platform. Welcome, Maya. You and I had such a lively introductory call a few weeks ago that I know this conversation is going to be just as interesting for our listeners. I want to dig into all the info that answers the question, why May? But I'd love to start the conversation with the backstory. Can you take us through your background and the experiences that led you to found May? Absolutely, Christine. And first, I would love to just thank you for having me and and giving the space for, for this important conversation at a very important time and during Women's History Month. In terms of my my backstory and what led me to found May, you know, by way of quick introduction to me, I've been in healthcare myself for the better part of 20 years. I came out of business school almost that long ago, did a few years in healthcare management consulting, did many, many years in digital health in pharma, and did many years of nonprofit maternal health work on the side, right? And so this is a, a an area of passion and interest for me. But beyond that, Christine, I'm also a a black mother of three little girls, right? And so I think this is something that is, you know, deeply personal to me just in thinking about my own pregnancy experiences, but also the experiences of so many other black women that I know and love, right? And I think some of the resounding stories and experiences and challenges that we've had are pervasive, right? They are more of the norm versus the exception. And so so this is something that felt really meaningful to me. And and I'll tell you that I started thinking about May conceptually back in the summer of 2020, right? And I think in that moment, we were all in a particular headspace, right? There was a lot of, um, a lot of, conversation, a lot of news around social injustice, around the roles that we should all be playing around opportunities to show up and and give back. And, and certainly, I think that was a conversation that was being had in my home, right? And across my my network of friends and family and, and loved ones, w- which really was, you know, how do we, how do we stand up for the things that we believe in, right? And, and for, for the things that we can see very clearly need to change, right? And so I, I was having a lot of conversations with my family at that time around my career, right? And and doing something that felt a little bit more mission focused, doing something that that felt a little bit more meaningful to me as a black woman, as a black mother, and and really in thinking about the the futures that I wanted my three brown daughters to have, right? And so I started thinking about the concept of May in the summer of 2020, started working with an incubator at that time, uh, founded the the business a handful of months later, and did a small raise in mid-year 2021 that allowed me to build a small team and to, to start bringing May to life. That's great. That's great. Thank you for that background. I was reading some of the statistics on your website. For example, Black women are twice as likely to experience a pregnancy-related complication, and Black women are three times more likely to experience a pregnancy-related death than white women. But the interesting thing you also say there is that 60% of Black maternal deaths are avoidable. 
And we'll talk a little bit more about how May addresses these in a few minutes. But first, what are the, some of the reasons these statistics exist? Why is there such disparity in maternal health for Black women? Yeah, I think this is such an important question to start with, right? And I think what has been well established up until this point and really underpins and exacerbates a lot of the the problems and disparities here is a uh, a bias in our care, right? That is very pervasive, right? There's been a lot of established evidence by now that says, you know, when Black women are reporting symptoms, when Black women are reporting concerns, when Black women are reporting pain, that we're typically not responded to in the same way, right? There's a lack of trust, there's a lack of belief, there's a lack of timely responsiveness, right, that could help to mitigate some of these problems. And I think that that is a real pervasive and deep and systemic issue that we just have to acknowledge and and start to work to address, right? And I think beyond that, you know, it's really in thinking about a lot of the generational barriers to access that we as a community have had, right? And and so thinking about care access in many ways, right? Really thinking about and, and understanding the complexities of the different things that are driving how we interact with the healthcare system, including that bias, right? But also thinking about financial barriers, geographic barriers, being able to actually find like-minded providers to serve us and, and find providers with whom we are feeling and experiencing respect in our care, right? And and I think the the downstream impact of a lot of this is that many of us have not had that access, right? Or many of us have been in circumstances where we have needed to pull back from our care in a way that has led to lots of different problems with, with respect to equity and also the um, the health circumstances that we're entering into pregnancy with, right? And so in some cases, we're, we're entering into pregnancy with higher rates of hypertension, with higher rates of diabetes, with higher rates of different chronic diseases, right? And then still not being in a position to really find that care team that is effectively responding to those needs, right? And so I, I think this is a, a huge and systemic problem and one that, you know, it doesn't have a silver bullet solution, but but I think finding that cultural alignment in care, finding care teams that we trust and putting ourselves in situations where the trust in that relationship is not breaking down further is is really, really critical for us. You mentioned a couple of times in that response, the word barriers. And, uh, you know, I mentioned in my opening that this is Women's History Month. But before we move on, let's spend a minute on the history of your company name, because I think it you know it's just an interesting story about someone who overcame a lot of barriers, because it's a very powerful meaning behind May Health and the name there. Yeah, and it's a little bit of a play on words, right? So I wanted to make sure that the name of this company represented a nod of gratitude to a health equity champion. The particular person I had in mind was May Edward Chin. She was a Black woman. Actually, her name, her name is spelled slightly differently, but a little bit close to mine. So I changed the spelling of the name a bit. But May Edward Chin was actually the first graduate of Bellevue University Hospital Center, which is now NYU's medical school. At that time, she was she was banned from practicing in many of the hospitals in New York State. And so she did a lot of care and support for patients in her community in Harlem from her home, right? She was an oncologist. She spent a lot of time serving her community, right? And serving her community in a way that mitigated, right? Some of the challenges to access that they otherwise had, right? So actually doing consults and visits and even surgeries in her own home for members of her own community in Harlem and really making sure that Black 
in individuals in New York had had access to the the best care that they could possibly receive right through through her really a trailblazer and thinking about flexible access and equity and and doing so with a community based approach right and so I would say that our, not, our our name is really a nod of gratitude to Dr. May Edward Chin. I, I did again slightly modify the spelling of our name just because it felt a little bit strange to name our company M A Y when my name is Maya. <laughs> <laughs> a little serendipity there, I think. Yeah, maybe. <laughs> a little serendipity there. And I certainly didn't want um, anyone to think that was you know about me versus really versus looking at a real health equity champion and trailblazer. And so I call it a nod of gratitude versus a uh, name sake, but but nonetheless, that was the story and thinking behind it. I was doing a little bit of research on her myself. And in addition to some of the things that you mentioned about her accomplishments, I read that she was the first woman to ride with the Harlem Hospital ambulance crew on emergency calls. So another really interesting tidbit. All right. So we talked about the need for May Health and your vision for a solution. Let's dive a little bit into the details about what May offers with maybe an overview of your service model. What support and resources does May provide? Yeah. So I think it's really important to say here that I myself am someone who comes from a digital health background, right? And I really believe in digital health solutions in terms of their ability to bridge access and help to get folks resources and tools and information in whatever form they'd like, right? And in in the comfort of their own home, right? When I think about the complexities of Black maternal health disparities and some of the things that we've just talked about, I don't think the digital health solution in and of itself is, is actually enough, right? What we know is that we sometimes also need you know, a champion and an advocate standing in the room, standing next to us to make sure that we understand what's happening in our care, we're consenting to what's happening in our care, to make sure that our preferences around our experiences are acknowledged and respected, right? And so for that reason, May really does exist as a hybrid solution, right? One that is digital first, but leveraging our digital health platform to really bring to bear many of the community-based services and clinical interventions that we know work for women generally, but for this population in particular, right? And so our platform, again, is digital first, right? So we're doing a lot via our digital platform to help women, Black expectant mothers specifically, with pregnancy and postpartum education, tools, resources, but also importantly, health tracking, right? So so doing a lot by way of our uh, digital health platform engagement to really understand how our users are faring, both with respect to, you know, their physical health, their emotional well-being, some of those social determinants-oriented barriers to care. Our goal is really to have a continuous connection point and to ask moms the right question around how they're doing, how they're faring with their pregnancy and postpartum experience, and to really understand that in real time, right? And so we have certain tracking questions that we ask mom. We have gamification that's really embedded in every step to help keep that platform experience sticky. We have digital education. We have real-time issue escalation support, right? If mom tells us she's experiencing something that we have flagged as a risk factor, she sees immediate language on our platform to understand next steps in her care, but also why we suggest it, right? And so there's a lot that we're trying to do to address health literacy and re-engagement around the healthcare experience. Importantly, though, and and where I started was that I, I don't think that that in and of itself is enough, right? Because we do know what we know about bias in care. And so we have overlaid on top of our digital health platform also a community-based layer of support that begins with partnership with community-based doulas, right? So we're 
doing a lot of work to activate and pull into Medicaid participation where we can culturally align doulas in an individual's community and and really driving a lot of the administrative support for those partners, right? Things like helping them to get a an NPI, right? A national practitioner ID, helping them if it's on behalf of a Medicaid plan to register with a Medicaid state agency in, in the state uh, that, that we're operating doing work to get them embedded with our partner insurance plan if that if that is relevant for for the partnership and then doing a lot of the administrative support for those partners to to really let them focus on the part of the work that makes the most impact and serves their heart right while we do some of the more messy things around you know billing and claims management scheduling a lot of the sort of administrative components of the job right and so we're really bring to get, bringing together those two parts right well, what we think is best of digital health support risk id continuous tracking digital education but also with the community based layer of services again starting with community based doula support where we know that there's a really meaningful correlation between doula participation and and being able to actually influence some of those downstream pregnancy impacts that we're looking to improve, right? Things like high rates of non-medically indicated C-sections, rates of preterm labor, low birth weight babies, rates of successful breastfeeding and duration of that breastfeeding, a heightened understanding of postpartum complications and the need to re-engage if mom is not healing properly. All of these sorts of things are areas of focus. And Christine, we are primarily at this point contracted with Medicaid insurance plans directly, but we are now stepping into commercial opportunities as well, right? So both looking to work directly with employers, but also looking to support the commercial side of some of our existing uh, managed care partners, which is a really exciting inflection point for us and a really exciting growth opportunity for us. And I think that, you know, what I would say is that we started in Medicaid, we started in the hard place, right? And I think that there have been really, really substantive learnings there in terms of how we can successfully engage this population, right? And it is certainly not the singular experience of Black expectant mothers. It was not mine, but it is the it is the majority experience, right, where we've got Medicaid funding nearly half of births in the U.S. each year, but we've got Medicaid funding closer to 65, 68% of Black births a year. So it was really important that we not ignore that segment. But I think now there's a really substantive and meaningful opportunity to step out and beyond it based on uh, all that we have learned. And we're very excited to take that next step. Yeah, and I definitely want to talk a lot about what that employer market could mean and what that fit is there. And one of the things you had mentioned in our last discussion, and you just mentioned again now, is just this impact of cultural alignment between patient and provider. And so when you think about the community involvement that you talked about and the cultural alignment with the patient and provider, what's can you expand a little bit on that and just sort of why that's so important and and how that's a focus? Yeah. Yeah, you know, I think it's it's probably fair to say that many of us hold implicit bias, right? Many of us have things that we believe to be true of folks who may be different from us, right? And I think that for many of us, for many Black women who have navigated this particular life stage and, you know, healthcare episode, what we have found is that implicit bias deeply impacts us, right? I I share this example often that I had an OB where I delivered one of my daughters who said to me, you know, do you have a healthy diet? And I said, yes. And she said, do you eat vegetables? And I said, yes. And she said, can you name a vegetable? And I said, I can, but I will not, right? And there are these little sort of microaggressions or small judgments, again, that just remind us of that distance and, and perhaps remind us that our care providers 
are not fully understanding or acknowledging or respecting who we are, right? I, I think that a lot of our care is just really seeped with this sort of bias. And again, I think that when that starts to break down, when that trust in that relationship starts to break down, it does impact how we engage in our own care, even if it may impact that in a very subconscious way, right? And so so it's really important, you know, I, I would say that a lot of our users have indicated that cultural alignment on their care team is something that they seek but it's very hard for us to find, right? We are, let's say, 15% of the population and we're about 4 to 5% of the population of doctors, right? And so for many of us who aspire to have that cultural alignment on our care team, we can't always find it. I, I always share as well that our, our clinical director, Dr. Michelle Owens, she is a high-risk OBGYN in the state of Mississippi and for upwards of 15 years was the only high-risk OBGYN who was a Black woman in the state of Mississippi, meaning that, you know, any other Black woman in the state of Mississippi who had a high-risk pregnancy couldn't have a Black OBGYN unless they were with Dr. Michelle Owens, right? And I think that's a really that's a really challenging situation to be in, particularly where there's evidence that shows that in some cases our care is better, right? There has been some evidence that came out around, you know, black infants and how they how they progress through NICU stays, how they, you know, how they heal through prematurity and the like, and those outcomes being a lot better and a lot stronger if they had a black doctor on their care team or a black nurse on their care team, right? And so that's not coming out of nowhere. I think again, it's something that is is well established. It helps us to feel respected. It helps us to feel understood and seen and heard. And again, there's a pretty significant mismatch in terms of our population demographics and the the sort of demographics of the provider community, right? And so where that I, I think it behooves us to to be a little bit creative and to to think creatively is where else can we find that and add it onto our care team, right? I think there are a lot of efforts underway to help to continue to diversify the population of physicians in the US. And I hope all of that work continues to you know, grow and thrive. And and in the meantime, right, where else can we as Black women find more immediate cultural alignment on our care teams, right? And so so that is something that we think a lot about as a team at, at May, right, is that we can activate birth workers of color to be a part of that extended care team, right? And it's never about replacing the OB. I think that's such a, a an incredibly critical relationship for any woman who's birthing, right? To have that OB or midwife or someone with that deep medical training, and then to have that be a person that you trust and can talk openly to and, and all of the sort of ideals, right, that we would all want when we're when we're going through that experience. But again, for many of us, we we simply don't have it, right? And so we think a lot about supplementation of of that cultural alignment on the care team and where we can find other folks who can serve as emotional supports, educators, comfort resources, and and the like, right? And I would say that as we build our networks of community-based doula partners. We also have a lot of those those doulas who are also trained in social work and trained as, you know, OB nurses and, and a lot of these more medically oriented backgrounds, which is something that we really value. But we do see them as in many instances the the missing link, right? And the, the piece that that we think can really help to improve these perinatal experiences and also to help build trust with that core care team that mom might be seeing. Yeah, I just I thought of something as you were speaking that I, I didn't even write down, but I'm just going to ask the question anyway. Is what you're doing and what you're describing in terms of the inequality it goes beyond just maternity, right? So, have you seen other other types of similar resources and support across other medical spectrums too, or other types of you know health conditions that yeah. 
Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think there's some interesting startups in the space. I think one one really great example, and maybe one you've heard of, is Health and Her Hue, right? Which focuses on connecting Black women and and more holistically, you know, other women of color with culturally aligned caregivers and practitioners who, you know, may serve in many different functions, right? So they're not limited to a maternity scope or offering. It's really thinking about you know, that holistic care team, right? Your primary care physician, your therapist, your your doula, your OB, all, all of these individuals, and really just being able to connect through a marketplace that is really matching based on that cultural alignment. And I think we're seeing some different solutions pop up in, in that space that I, I hope will be very impactful. That's great. Are there any standout moments that you can share, maybe a time when you supported a woman through her pregnancy and felt like this is the reason I started May? Absolutely. I think what I would share, Christine, is actually probably our very first Medicaid-supported birth, which was with one of our planned partners. This was a Black woman uh, covered under Medicaid insurance, pregnant with twins. Typically for any of us pregnant with twins, right, we would we would expect to have a C-section delivery. Um, this mom is someone who we supported with, uh, obviously, our digital health support, our weekly health tracking, our digital education, but we also work to connect her with a local doula in her community, again, someone with shared cultural background, and that doula was with her on her baby's birth date. She actually had a double vaginal birth. She had no pain medication, which is something that, you know, I cannot have imagined having any of my babies without pain medication, but nonetheless, that was this mom's preference. And and I'm so thrilled that, you know, this support structure helped her to achieve that, right? But it was really interesting when we shared that back with our plan partner, they said, holy crap, we never you know, would expect something like that. And, and I think for our team, that was incredibly validating, right? Because not only did this mom have a great experience, but I think it being a multiples birth and that being the particular outcome was something that we didn't even think was possible. But I think it was a real testament to what we can do and deliver if we really wrap mom with all of the support that she needs and and create a circumstance around that birth where she's feeling emotionally supported, she's feeling respected, she's feeling cared for, she's being comforted, and so on and so on and so on. Right. And I think for for us this was it was again just so validating. I think we had we had tears on our team when we got feedback around this birth, it being our first, because I think it was just such a strong indication of what we could do, right? What we could do for so many more mothers as we as we scaled up. And and also a really important indication to our plan partners, right? Of of where there are meaningful dollars and cents attached to some of these birth outcomes that we can help to mitigate, right? Where we're creating both a better experience for mom, but we're also creating a reduced clinical cost of care, right? Because the fact that this mom had two babies born vaginally versus a double C-section on that day. The fact that this mom uh, opted not to use pain medication, all of those are significant costs on the part of the plan, right? And so I think this was a really validating example for us to say, not only did this mom have a great experience and her babies arrived in the world in exactly the way she'd hoped, but there was also a lot of money saved, right? And in, in the course of that that birth experience. And so that was really important for us to, to see an experience as a first signal of what, what we can what we could do. Yeah, just a tremendous outcome for your first story, for sure. Great. Thank you for sharing that. 
Okay, so we talked a little bit about how you're marketing today and what phase two looks like in the commercial and the employer markets. And then I'd love to talk a little bit more and dive a little bit more into, into what it means for the employer markets. So the first is just, you know, again, around how this type of resource is such a natural fit for an employer market to help tackle a number of workplace challenges, productivity, absenteeism, the rising cost of healthcare, we just sort of talked about, and therefore insurance premiums, just kind of name a few. How do you position May as a solution here? Yeah, you know, I think there there are a couple of really important things you named, you named a few, right? When we, when we think about the experience that mothers are having generally, right? We know that mothers are not adequately supported in this country, right? I, I, I worked for a, one of the largest healthcare companies. I had, you know, nine weeks off paid with C-sections, right? I wasn't physically healed. I wasn't emotionally healed. I wasn't returning to work as my best self, right? Because I wasn't physically or emotionally healed, right? And so I think one of the things that's really important beyond, I, I think I just shared an example of what some of the, you know, cost implications and the positive sort of cost implications can be of, of better supporting births and getting moms to more of a natural birthing experience. But obviously, when we think about return to work, right, and and having women in the workplace really be of sound body and mind when they return, it's such a critical life stage to meaningfully support, right? To make sure that moms are minimizing the likelihood of some of those avoidable complications, to make sure that moms end up bringing a healthy baby into the world that's not in the NICU, right? Where she's going to be stretched doing two jobs instead of one, right? In addition to just caring for her newborn baby. I I would also point out that, you know, Black women disproportionately suffer from perinatal mood disorders and disproportionately are not treated for those perinatal mood disorders when we think about things like postpartum depression and a general lack of support in that life stage, right? And so it, it is really important to make sure that Moms have an avenue, again, for getting to that optimal birth outcome and experience, both with respect to mom's health and babies. But it's also critically important that we continue to support mom through that early postpartum window of time, right, to, again, just return to a place of sound body and mind, right? Making sure that we understand if mom is experiencing, you know, perinatal mood disorders and we're connecting her to care and support if so, right? Making sure that mom is even ready to return to work from the perspective of breastfeeding, right? How are we getting to the point of being able to feed and nurture baby once mom is back out of the home if that's what her job requires, right? And so I do see our solution as one that is very holistic in terms of our ability to support all of those various needs, right? Because that is a role that both I I think our digital health platform is playing in terms of education and guidance and connections to resources and benefits optimization and all of these sorts of things. But importantly, that's also a role that a role that the those those community-based doula partners can continue to play in that postpartum period, right? Helping moms to have an awareness around postpartum healing and understanding, you know, if something's off right? Um, helping moms to understand how to successfully breastfeed and and really prepare for that back to work transition, right? Helping moms to really drive forward and optimize, you know, postpartum OB visit attendance and, and making sure that, you know, mom is supported in terms of knowing what questions to ask to make sure that she's okay and ready for return to work, right? And so I think all of these things have an important um, implication on employer side retention, also the potentially the duration of that leave, but but mom also returning to work and and really being ready to to take that on, right? And to to know that things at home are okay, to know that she's okay, and so there's a meaningful role for us to play there. You know, I think that the impact that 
we saw even during the COVID pandemic, right, where we saw a lot of women fall out of the workforce and that was even more heightened for Black women. I think that employers are in a position where, you know, there's a real need to think about DEI solutions. And, and I, I, we've talked about why I believe, right, that cultural alignment in, in those solutions is so important. And we've also talked a little bit, you know, about why those heightened disparities for Black women are minimizing the ability for us to right, get back to work and do so quickly and really be at our best. And so the more that we can do to support underserved mothers, diverse mothers through this life stage, I think it will, I think it will serve employers well if, if executed properly. Yeah. And you actually touched in that response on, on some of the things I was going to follow up with just the, you know, recently a lot of thought leadership on what DI can be in the workplace, what attracting talent looks like, what retaining talent looks like, and how much benefit packages and, and value services like this can be things that employees really look to. So I think in a lot of ways, this, this demonstrates that as a solution to so many, so many different aspects of the workplace today and what employers are trying to do to, to meet the needs of their employees. Yeah. I mean, I think that, you know, I was someone who, I am someone who deeply cares about my career, right? And the sort of role that I'm playing in the world. I am also someone who had three kids pretty rapidly and struggled a lot with that return to work, right? And the reason that I was able to stay in the workforce and thrive was because I had a particular boss who was very understanding, very family oriented. He said, if you're struggling, step back and take the time you need, make sure baby's okay. And then you come back and do what you can do here, right? This can't be first and that be secondary. That has to be first and this be secondary. And I think that um, having that support is really what kept me in the workforce. And, and even for those of us who are hugely career focused and, and really wanting to be there, this is a very, very difficult transition to navigate, right? And so so I, I completely agree. I think there's, there's a lot more that employers can do to support that. And I think there's a whole lot individual managers can do to support that too. But, but having appropriate benefits and supports and resources in place for a birthing employee population is critically important. Yeah, it's interesting what you just said about, you know, just having that that sort of individual leadership support from someone who says, if you need to do this, do it. Just hearing those words, even if you don't actually take them up on it, can be so helpful in those types of situations, just to balancing your day a little bit more. Yeah, absolutely. We know that about 70% of employees get their benefits through the workplace. And no matter what type of benefit program or, or product that an employer is offering their employees, the employer themselves play just such a key role in in driving knowledge about that product. Because if employees don't know the resource exists, they can't use it. Uh, and I think traditionally in this industry, we've just seen there's been this struggle with getting education to the employee level, communicating the right way, driving the engagement that we want at the employee level so people know what they have and, and know how to use their benefits. How do you foresee employers best supporting your mission around access to proactive, high-quality care for everyone by building awareness and engagement around something like May? Yeah, I think there's a huge role that affinity groups can play, right? So I think thinking about opportunities to engage with you know, affinity groups for mothers and also thinking about opportunities to engage with affinity groups for culturally diverse employees. What I would say about May and the particular space we're operating in is that there tends to be a deep passion, right, across Black Black women, across our families, our husbands, our partners, whatever form our families may take to help us be okay, 
right? And so I, I, I think that there is a lot of excitement, right, where we have engaged with employers, where we have been able to have meetings with some of the affinity groups within. A lot of it spreads through word of mouth, right? This is a resource and a support that I think many of those individuals really want to see offered within their corporations and one that they are excited to spread the word around, right? And to to have adopted on a meaningful scale. And so I think there's a, a huge role that affinity groups can play. I think there's also a lot that we can do really in collaboration with the plans, right? And so understanding that for self-insured employers that the health plan tends to operate in more of an administrative capacity, right? I still think there's a lot that we can do to be able to optimize and streamline benefits, right? And even perhaps, you know, billing and eligibility checks and marketing and all of these sorts of things that we can do in pretty tight collaboration with the plan partner. And one of the things that I would say about May is that we are at this point very well embedded with many of those large MCOs, right? And so there's an existing familiarity, there's a a, a comfort and and sort of familiarity with a lot of our marketing and collateral and materials that we've been using for awareness and to drive enrollment from the plan side. I think many of those things are things that we can lift and kind of customize for for employers without asking the benefits teams to do a whole lot on their own because I know benefits teams tend to be really stretched. And so um, so that's really how how we think about things, right? We, we've learned a lot uh, in terms of how to effectively enroll with our Medicaid plan partners. There's a lot that we can lift and customize and reuse for employer partners. And there's a lot that we could do, I think, to collaborate with affinity groups to get the word out and to present and to share and to have people People actually co-promote and and forward information on the program to to their employees. That's a really interesting approach with the affinity groups. I hadn't thought of something like that, but I definitely can see how that could be a, a viable solution. Before we wrap, I want to go back to an interesting experience that you mentioned in your your intro today, and also when we were speaking a few weeks ago, which was your participation in the new business incubation program. Anything of note that you learned there that helped drive your strategy or your approach as CEO and founder? Yeah, yeah. So I was a part of the the Founders Factory Incubator. One thing even, you know, taking a step back from learnings is that I think for me as a first-time founder and as a sole founder, one thing that I knew was that there was a lot that I didn't know, right? And so what I really appreciated about the incubator experience was that there were different experts, right, in different functional areas who could step in and support me. And I think there was a lot of support that came from that, but that it was also probably the perception of having that support that really pushed me over the line to found this business and to do something that was meaningful to me, but something that I may have been very scared to do as an individual otherwise, right? So so I think just giving, getting me over the line was was one huge value and benefit. But beyond that, you know, there were experts at the incubator in marketing and branding in partnerships in fundraising, right? And so I think, again, for me as a first-time founder, I would not have known how to approach my first fundraise, but I had a lot of support from my incubator just in doing deck reviews and storytelling and pitch practice and, you know, commonly asked questions, FAQs and prep and what are the sorts of things I would need in my data room. And, and you know, I think this is a, you know, it's just one of the tricky things about being a, a founder, but it, it really unlocks a lot in terms of your being able to have money in the bank and to hire the experts you need and to really build the 
you know, foundational team you need to to get it done, right? And so I think that the incubator was really impactful for me in that regard and just getting me to and through our first raise. I would also just say, Christine, that from my perspective, right, my experience is very much healthcare B2B, right? And so I know not a thing about marketing or PR or, you know, personal branding or business branding and all of these things. I have no idea how to use Instagram. That's just not me. And so having having different experts who who could help to show me, right, the basics of how to use these tools to drive awareness around me, I think that was very additive and they continue to be a resource even to our, our growing team now. And so I think for me, it was critically important, right? I don't know if the incubator path is for everyone, right? I, I don't know that it is necessarily for people who are not first-time founders and who really understand the ropes. But for me, um, given my particular background and how new much of this was to me, I, I think it was very valuable. And I think really just got me over the line to just kind of give me the confidence to do it. It's funny. I can imagine just being in a situation where you're like, I have this great idea. I know it's going to work, but maybe not knowing it means doing all these other things too, right? Like, I just want to focus on this idea and get it out there. And here's all these different aspects of what it really means and 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 just the the what you just talked about, right? Having to get into areas that maybe you don't have the experience, but willing to do it and just have that commitment just kind of demonstrates how much how much commitment you had to moving this forward. Yeah. I mean, ironically, I think I I came in knowing how to do one really hard part, right? Which is to speak the language of purchasers because I had been on the other side and I had been a purchaser myself for so many years, right? So I had a lot of comfort and familiarity with, you know, navigating B2B healthcare sales cycles and getting through you know, security diligence and all of these sorts of difficult pieces that I think a lot of entrepreneurs struggle with. But it's a lot of the, you know, startup stuff that came before that, right, that I had never done before. And so if somebody had given me a finished solution and said, you know, go sell it, go find partners, I would have felt great doing that part. But all of the, you know, hundreds of steps that came before that, many, many of those things were were very new to me. And I'm very lucky now to have a, a an incredibly strong early team. But when I was founding May, I did not, right? And so, so there, there was a need to really, really lean on, lean on my incubator for that. Okay. So for those listeners who might be in a similar place to where you were in the summer of 2020, thinking through what's next and, and perhaps contemplating a new business for an idea that they have, what advice would you give to future entrepreneurs? I would say just believe in yourself enough to give it a try, right? Because it, you, you read about, you know, I can think about, the, the many, many articles I read about Toyin at City Block and many other, you know, brilliant leaders that I have admired from afar. And I could have never imagined myself in their shoes, right? And, and I think that it feels surreal, right? It, it feels like something that's unachievable. But if you just step into it and you give yourself the confidence to try, chances are you can step into it successfully, right? Just if if you're thoughtful about the resources and the supports and the early team and really just surrounding yourself with the the things that you need to to get it done successfully, right? But I think what I struggled with most was having the confidence to try. And now that we're here, um, it's really taking off. And I think for, for us, just from a health equity perspective, it feels so meaningful and it feels so important. And I, I can say that you know, I'm 20 years into my career, and this by far will have been the most meaningful thing that I've I've done. And, and I would have hugely regretted it had I not tried. And that's fantastic advice. 
So Maya, thank you so much for your time. I've really enjoyed getting to know you. I've enjoyed our conversations. I've learned so much from you in, in the conversations that we've had. So I'm really looking forward to watch watching May's growth as well. For our listeners, you can find more information about May and, and resources at www.meetmay.com. And for more information on Brella, visit joinbrella.com. Thank you again so much for joining us today. Thank you for having me, Christine. It's been a pleasure. Visit joinbrella.com slash podcast for notes from today's show. And if you liked the episode, share it with a colleague. This helps us spread the word. Be sure to subscribe or follow in your favorite podcast player so you don't miss our next episode. And that's a wrap from the Better Benefits Podcast. Thanks for listening and have a great week.